Welcome to the audio podcast for the main service of Northridge Church. Our hope is that this will be a tool that blesses and challenges you in your walk with Jesus. If you want to learn more about Northridge Church, you can visit us at nrchurch.ca or join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. Until we meet, be blessed and enjoy the word for today. Thank you, Matt. Um, so we do automatic withdrawals for our, um, our giving. <laughs> but I, I, I've never thought of the uh, auto lamb slaughter sacrifice um, metaphor. And so, um, yeah, we'll have to pray about that one. That's, that's a good one. Um, Josiah, do you mind going through my emails? He's got all the power back there. And there should be an email from Kyle Veer, V-E-E-R. And this is gonna be some, you don't, don't panic, this could be for the end, but he, there's an announcement that we're gonna make just at the very end about an opportunity to gather citywide and worship tonight. So uh, this is something, and if you can't find it, just remind, give me a wave and remind me to say something about it at the end. Um, thanks, Matt, that was awesome. Um, uh, this morning we're gonna do something, we're gonna start a little bit differently. And um, we're going to have a bit of a, a family meeting. And, uh, and family meetings look a little different in the Baza household today than they once did because our, our kids are adults. And so once upon a time, when I, when I had this kind of vision of, uh, of the church gatherings, we talked about it actually at AGM. Rob modeled this for us. It's this kind of gathering for family business. And in my mind, the model was a little skewed because it felt like mom and dad telling the kids what's going on. But really, now I feel like I've got a bit more of a, a, an understanding of, of what was modeled for me in the sense that our kids are adults. So when we have a family meeting, we're, we're meeting with adults. And the conversation looks a little bit different and we can, we can have a little bit of a, a back and forth and um, you can go a little bit deeper with it. And so I want to explain that just a couple things happening. We're having, um, we're coming through a bit of a season or we're in a bit of a season, but we're also looking ahead at a week that um, is going to be a little bit challenging. Um, right now, Gord is in the back teaching our youth. And uh, Pastor Gord, for those of you who don't know, serves as a chaplain with uh, both FIRE and RCMP. Uh, he also is very connected to our veterans community, um, serving as a chaplain with them. And um, so this week, he is going to be very involved uh, as a chaplain for our fallen officer uh, in Burnaby. And um, it's, it's a time that is going to just be really, really tough. It, it's, if it's, a, it's a difficult thing to go through when you have faith. But I can only imagine the pain and the hurt and the confusion uh, for people who, who don't have faith. And um, the, the brotherhood uh, of, of police officers, whether city police or RCMP, uh, brotherhood, sisterhood is very strong, very deep, and very powerful. And um, this is going to affect them in a, in a really meaningful way. And so one of the things we want to bring to the family table here is prayer for Pastor Gore in his role this week. Uh, also, many of you know a fellow named Bela Piozza. Uh, who passed away um, several months ago now uh, on a motorcycle accident. But this Saturday we'll be holding a memorial for him. Uh, and it's going to be at Ridge Church. It, it, he's, he was just a fellow who was really well-loved and 
uh, admired and, and, and known. And so it's going to be a, a, a bigger group, and it's going to be a real opportunity to um, point to Jesus in this time. We want to remember Bela and honor him, and um, we want to set a context there. So if you can be praying for me, and if you, you're attached or connected, if you know Bela, then by all means, you are welcome. There, there's going to be space, and um, so keep that in mind. Uh, and as many of you know, uh, last week I was made aware of uh, uh, more uh, information, more specifics, uh, and allegations uh, against uh, Foursquare Canada, uh, Northside Church, and my Uncle Barry. And just for some context, because many of you don't know our history, um, our church, so North Ridge Church, was planted uh, almost 15 years ago now, uh, out of Northside Church. Part of where we got our name was a, a tribute to the church where we were planted out of, and we were sent and commissioned by my pastor, Uncle Barry. And so Uncle Barry has pastored at Northside uh, up until recently. And there have been allegations um, against him, and all that is kind of working out in the, in the court system. And um, it's, it's tough. It's hard. And um, it, what it does is, it, it, it is it's, a, it's a sensitive topic at the best times. It, but it pokes us in our soft spots. It pokes us in, in places where we might already have hurt. And so it can inflame that. And, and this is going to be a really difficult time for a lot of people. I want to kind of bring us together. This is the family meeting part of this. I want to bring us together and rally under what we know to be true. And this is something I like to do, but I would encourage you to do. Anytime there's something that's that's confusing and heavy, just bring it down, boil it down to what is true. And here are three things I've written down. This is something I know to be absolutely true. That God loves to work in the light. He, he wants the lights turned on. He wants for full understanding. Now, whether that means that I get to know every bit of the story, I, honestly, I don't want to know every bit of the story. But he, he wants to work in the light. He wants to work with truth. So I want to pray for the lights to be turned on. Second thing I know to be true is that God loves deeply and wants to care deeply for everybody involved. Uh, whether it be the accuser or the accused, I have no doubt that my call is to pray for everybody involved because I know that my God loves them all. That's the second thing. Third thing, and this is the thing that fuels me in my faith, is that I know that God can take something that can be wielded for harm, something that the enemy intends for harm, that he wants to hurt people. He wants to hurt, he wants to hurt the church. And he intends it for harm. But our God can take that weapon and use it for good. And so we want to pray that he would do that. I, I want to kind of point you towards the fact that this is already starting to happen in a form. Uh, Foursquare is making changes. Foursquare is our denomination. I, I should assume that all of you know that. We belong to the Foursquare Church of Canada. And even now, there are some changes being made that are healthy changes. 
regardless of, of, of this other narrative, these are changes for the good. So already things are being worked for good. All right? So I need you guys right now. I need you to pray with me. And if you wouldn't mind, just bow your head, closing your eyes, and pray along with me. Heavenly Father, we come to you in, in a time of hurt and a time that is hard. And uh, we come to you knowing that you are our rock. You are our fortress. You are the thing that we can cling to. We know that is sure. We know that is true. And so, Father, we come to you right now and we pray for the lights to be turned on. Not so that everybody gets to have a, a looky-loo and, 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 and see behind the veil to see all of the things that have happened or things that haven't happened, but so that you have a place to work that is free from shadow, that all of the truth is exposed and dealt with. Father, we pray that you would intervene like a surgeon and where there is sickness, even though it might and probably will cause pain, Lord, we pray that you would do your surgery to deal with whatever needs dealing with in the lives of everybody involved. We pray that you would do surgery, even if it means pain in the moment, we know it means wholeness and healing for the future. And we pray that you would do that good work in us. Lord, we know that you love everybody involved, from the accuser to the accused. And so, Father, I pray that we would follow, as Christ followers, we would follow your example of love, and we would demonstrate love, first and foremost, by praying for the people involved. Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom and discernment to, to block out the noise and not concern ourselves with the gossip, but that would be overshadowed, overpowered by our love, your love in us for those people. And lastly, we pray that the enemy would not get a foothold. Another truth we know is that uh, the church is your bride. And that does not mean that the bride is perfect. But it does mean that you care and love for the bride. And so, Lord, we pray that in this time, anything that might be used as a weapon, punitively against your bride, Lord, we pray that you would use it for good. And again, this doesn't mean that the, the bride doesn't have to suffer consequences for things that, that are, are not right. But Lord, I pray that anything that is used out of order against your bride, against your people, would be wielded for good. And that you would start to do a work in us even today, Lord, where healing and wholeness can come. We commit all of this into your hands, Father. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, that's our family business. I should have led with something a little lighter. If today you can feel your toes and your fingers, uh, you might want to say thank you to Jen McMillan because uh, she talked with the owners of the building, the Findlay family, and she got the heat turned on. So I know I'm a lot more comfortable today, but uh, so I probably should live with that. But uh, anyways, let's move in. Today we're in Romans 7. 
And, and one thing I want to make sure that you understand, uh, I, I've made this comment in a different fashion from the pulpit, is, is that we, we don't usually really react with scripture from the pulpit. family meeting but uh, this this appointment with Romans 7 was set up in the spring uh, long before we do any of this and uh, so any uh, any intersection uh, is maybe the work of the Holy Spirit maybe coincidence and so let's take Romans 7 for what it is and we're gonna look at every word of it and break it down and I pray encouragement for you from it let's look at verse 1 Paul picks up, he says, Or do you not know, brothers? For I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. And he gives an example. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Let me pause there for a second. I don't think I'm taking uh, liberal license by flipping it and saying the same is true for the husband, for her wife. Uh, I am bound to my wife in marriage while we're alive. But, and I don't even want to go into that part if she dies, because I'm supposed to die first. It's just too hard if she goes first. So. Um, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Uh, this line here, the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Paul makes this point that death, it now ends all obligations and contracts. So that's the flimsiness of a contract. A wife is no longer bound to her husband as he dies because death ends that contract. If her husband dies, she is set free from that law. And, and the point is this. The law is mortal. Death ends that portion of the law. Whereas grace deals with the eternal. Grace supersedes and extends beyond the law. We're going to see that theme throughout this chapter. Verse 4 says this, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written codes. So let's focus first on this line. You also have died to the law through the body of Christ. Uh, we see in Romans 6 that Paul carefully explained that we died with Jesus and we also rose with him. Now, although Paul only spoke of our death to sin in that, in that instance, now he explains that we also died to the law. This is what he's saying here in Romans 7. So that you may belong to another. And I love this line here. That you may belong to another. That another is the Father. We're not free from the law so that we can live unto ourselves. 
we are free so that we can be married in a way to Jesus so that we can bear fruit to God and this this brings up a key point Matthew 5 describes that Jesus Jesus says this about himself he did not come to abolish the law some of the language in Romans can make it sound like the law is like uh, the law right but Jesus did not come to abolish the law he did not come to flush that he didn't come to undo what was done for centuries and generations he came to fulfill the law he came to pay the price he came to settle the debt for the laws that we broke and that's the difference I was gonna say it's a subtle difference it's not that subtle it's kind of in your face so that we could bear fruit for well, no sorry bearing fruit for death that's not where I want to say so that bearing fruit for death is this uh, he explains a little bit more as we go farther into Romans 7 but we see his point that we only come fully to the place of bearing fruit for God when we are free from the law and I think we're gonna be able to make this point a little more clearly as we go along here um, uh, the key verse here is verse 6 we are now released from the law so that we can serve in the new way of the Spirit our freedom is not given to us so that we can stop serving God but so that we can serve him even better under newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter the difference I I, I hope this metaphor doesn't break down and I there's some a lot of pastors in the room right now and so I've I'm a little bit nervous about bringing my own little example in here but the difference of the law and living in the new way of the spirit can be summed up this way again forgive me if I if I butcher this but I can obey or I often actually I obey the speed limits put it this way when I obey the speed limits I'm doing it because I really don't want to get a ticket. I don't want to be in trouble with the law. Okay? I don't want to pay money. I don't want to lose my license. And so I obey the law. And the law is helpful to you who are on the road and on the sidewalks because I follow them out of fear of financial penalty. You are safer because of that. So the law is good. The law is helpful. The, the law works to keep people safe. But what if I lived and I, I may be released from the law, but I serve in the new way of the Spirit? And what if I drove in a way that showed love and care and attention to everybody around me? What if I was actively, this sounds psychotic, but can you imagine? What if I was actively driving around full of love for everybody else on the road, full of love for every kid who might run out, how cautiously would I drive? I would drive in a way that would just be like safe times 10. And that is the difference. That's the best way I can ex explain the difference between living under the law and, and living my life for the law compared to living my life in the spirit full of love for those around me it's not lawlessness it's actually an amplified it's a it's it's an exploded idea of love 
and care for others around me. We have the law because we don't have enough grace of our own. That's why it seems psychotic. It's not normal to drive around, oh, I'm caring for everybody around me as I drive. Okay? We have the law because we don't have enough of our own grace. We don't have enough of our own power in that area. Verse 7 says this. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? Well, by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. If you're reading this and you're confused, you're in good company. If you're reading this and you get a glimpse of something that happened in the very beginning of the Bible with Adam and Eve, then this gets a little clearer. This idea gets a little bit more clear. Adam and Eve were walking with God. They were literally walking with God. There was nothing between them and God, including clothing. There was literally nothing. They were completely vulnerable. They were completely uh, secure in their company with God. The world, the natural world, was created to provide everything they would ever need. They were never in danger. Everything was created perfectly for them. There was something created in the world, and, and this is a bigger topic than we have time to go into right now, but God created a tree that was not meant for Adam and Eve. It was, it was not meant for them. It was not for them. And it was not good for them. Just like in our house, the stove is a good thing. It heats up our food, and it makes delicious things. But the stove can also be dangerous. It's not good for us to touch the stove the wrong way. And so we set up rules for ourselves. We live by them naturally, and we set up rules for our kids. You, you just you can't touch this. When you see that it's red, don't touch it. Okay? And that's because we love our kids, and, and we want to protect them from it. There was one thing. The entire planet was covered with everything that Adam and Eve would ever need to sustain them, to give them pleasure, they lacked for nothing, but there was one tree that they were told, you know, this is not for you. This is the one thing that is not for you. The law was established, or a law was established in the life of Adam and Eve. They were given a rule. And when we talk about sin, using the law as a weapon against them. Sin was that serpent. Sin was Satan, who came in and saw his opening and started to kind of whisper in the ear of Adam. Did God really say? 
and, and deceived them to the point where the one thing that there was a rule, that there was a prohi- prohibition against, the enemy leveraged that as the most seductive siren in their lives. They were drawn to it. They could not resist it. And that gave birth to sin. When I read this section of Scripture, I see Adam and Eve, and I see the work of the enemy using the law to further sin. Verse 13 says this, Did that which was good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be known to be sin. And through the commandment that might become sinful beyond measure. For we know the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Paul describes himself as carnal. The the, the part here says, it was sin producing death in me through what is good. Though the law provokes our sin nature. And what I mean by that is, again, looking at Adam and Eve and and the tree. As soon as that became the one thing they couldn't have, we can identify this. I use this example quite often from the pulpit. That becomes the most attractive thing on the planet. It literally became the most attractive thing on the planet to Adam and Eve. Though they had everything they could ever want or need, that became the most attractive thing on the planet. Sin, uh, sorry, the law provokes our sin nature. But this can be used for good because it more dramatically exposes our deep sinfulness. Let me explain this. After all, if sin can use something as good as the law to its advantage in promoting evil, it shows how evil sin is. What it does is it shows the sin or the carnality of us. Next time you're encouraged to to sin, you feel it coming on, Get a full-length mirror and put it in front of you and sin in front of that mirror. Watch yourself. I, this is, sorry, a horrible picture, but, uh, but, but can you imagine if you've got it right up in front of you, if you know the law, if you know right and wrong, and if you are fully wrestling with the fact that you are sinning, if it's right in front of your face, it is exposing that sin in you. And it it makes it much more difficult to engage with it. Sometimes the enemy is just so sneaky and deceptive and whispers in your ear and can sometimes spin something to make, well, maybe it's not that bad. Maybe actually this is, maybe this is good. I deserve this. But when we're confronted with our sin, and that's one of the things the law does, is it, it, it holds up a mirror in our lives. It gives us something to measure it against so that we can see the full extent of our sinfulness. I'll give you a personal example, but I'll try not to be too personal. The the times when I have got the richest devotional life, or the time that I'm most intimately engaged in in my prayer life or my studies, those are the times where sin becomes the most repulsive. Because I've, I've got something fresh and beautiful to compare it against. It's harder to be deceived when my eyes are on something good. Conversely, 
When I'm lazy and when I am doing my own thing, if I'm serving my own selfishnesses, sin is right there. And it's just a really easy thing to kind of put my arm around and, hey, buddy, I remember you. It, be- it becomes way more comfortable to make that step into darkness if I'm already there serving my selfishness. Um, let's read a little bit more in that verse. In order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Sin becomes more sinful in light of the law in, in a couple of ways. First, sin becomes exceedingly sinful in contrast to the law. And second, sin becomes exceedingly sinful because the law provokes, we talked about this already, it provokes our evil nature. And Paul declares, I am of the flesh. And this is an important idea, an important thing to understand. He declares his own carnal nature. And the word carnal simply means of the flesh. Paul recognizes that a spiritual law cannot help a carnal man. And he uses this language, he was sold under sin. Paul is in bondage under sin, and the law can't help him out. You see, and I don't know how many of you don't put up your hands, how many of you have had trouble with the law, but the law only helps you if you're innocent. I'm going to say that again. The law is only an advantage to you. It only helps you if you are innocent. The law does not help the guilty. And what do we know about ourselves? That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all sinners. We are all guilty. So can the law help me? No. The law is only going to turn the light on to me and show my guilt. It's only going to show how I've broken the law. It can't save me. This is important. Even though Paul says that he's carnal, it does not mean that he is not a Christian. It does not mean he's not following Jesus. His awareness of his own carnality shows that God is doing a work in him. Let's go on to verse 15. This is really key in this chapter of Romans, chapter 7. Verse 15 says this, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is my, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in, within me. This is one of those passages that if you read quickly in your devotionals, i got to get this done before I get in the car, you're going to be like, what did I just read? It sounds like a lot of do's and do nots, wants, and stuff like that. But let's break it down. This first statement, I don't understand my own actions. Paul's problem is not a lack of desire. I I think this is key. If 
and and I I'm I, I'm overstepping here a little bit, but I I believe that if God looked at Paul in this example, and He examined Paul's heart, Paul uh, God would not say about Paul, "Well, you don't care, you don't you don't want to do what's right." I believe that we can believe that Paul's problem is not a lack of desire. He wants to do what is right. His problem isn't knowledge. It's not, a, it's not a case of not knowing right from wrong. We, we're patient with children because sometimes they just don't know that what they're doing is wrong or they don't understand why it's wrong, why it's not good for them. But Paul's problem was not a lack of knowledge. His problem was a lack of power. Our problem is a lack of power. We lack power because the law does not give us power. The law gives us fence posts. It doesn't give us power. It doesn't empower us to fight this carnality, this sinful nature of our flesh. The law says, here are the rules, you better keep them. But it gives us no power for keeping those rules, that law. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now, this can be confusing and, and dangerous if taken out of context. Paul is not here denying his responsibilities as a sinner. He's not throwing his hands up and saying like, hey, it's not me who's sinning. It's just the sin that dwells within me. Okay? You guys forgive me? No, he recognizes that as he sins, he is actually acting against his new nature as a new creation in Christ. A Christian must own up to his or her sin, yet realize that the impulse to sin does not come from who we really are in Jesus. Uh, there's a quote from one of my favorite people who I've never met, uh, C.S. Lewis says, no man knows how bad he is until he has tried to be good. I know that it is not good for me to snack at night. I know it. There's science that can tell me about it. And I have a beautiful wife who tells me about it. I know it's not, I know it's not good. I know that I shouldn't. It's not a knowledge problem. But man, I feel more attraction at the end of the day when I sit in front of the TV and watch, there's some connect, weird connection and quit theorizing as to why that is. But there's some connection that makes me think I need food. Food has, is never more attractive to me than when I sit in front of the TV at the end of the day. And, it's, and especially, it, that actually gets amplified when I decide, you know what? David and Miley's wedding is coming up. I want to look good in my suit. So I am not going to eat at the end of the day. Well, food becomes attractive times a billion when, when I am telling myself I am going to fight this urge. It gets even, so no man knows how bad he is until he has tried to be good. And Paul expands on that in verse 21. So I find it to, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, Evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, it's like my, my body, 
another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This line here, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Anybody who wants to do good becomes aware of this struggle. I mean, I love our men who are, are fighting their urges to use drugs and alcohol. It, it, it's a beautiful battle that they're embarking on. But man, when, when that is the thing that you're fighting against, and the enemy knows it's a soft spot for you. He uses every trick in the book to drag you right back down into that very thing that you're fighting against. Paul describes it this way, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin. Sin is able to war against Paul and win because there is no power in himself other than himself to stop sinning. Paul is caught up, sorry, Paul is caught in the desperate powerlessness of trying to battle sin with the power of self. I'm going to invite the worship team up. And really, this is at the heart and root of this. When we wage war against spiritual principalities with our flesh, you know what, honestly, those demons are undefeated. It's not a fair fight. And, and I, I, if I'm freaking you out, there's good news that comes after this. When we try and fight in our flesh, actually, I'm going to give some instruction to the worship team first. Can I actually ask for us to do What a Wonderful Name? I don't know if that's the name of the title of the song, the song we finished with, and then you can do the other song you plan. When we try in our humanness, in our flesh, in our skin, bones, muscles, ligaments, when we try to fight against spiritual principalities, we will literally lose every time. Our willpower will never be enough. And, and I, I hate to be discouraging, but it's truth. So Paul asked this question. Who will deliver me? If I can't do it, if I'm going to lose every time, who will deliver me? I'm going to read my notes here. Because the question is, how can we have a, even a hope to overcome or win the war against sin. Paul's perspective finally turns to something, actually someone, outside of himself. Uh, it's interesting. Paul has referred to himself some 40 times since Romans 7, verse 13. In the pit of his unsuccessful struggle against sin, Paul became entirely self-focused and self-obsessed. This is the place of any believer living under law who looks to himself and personal performance 
rather than looking to Jesus. When we look to ourselves, when we put the burden on ourselves to win or even to wage war against the enemy, all we're going to feel is that burden. All we're going to feel is pain. All we're going to feel is loss. And, and I'm being literal when I say that the enemy is undefeated when battling our flesh. But, but, somebody once painted a beautiful, beautiful picture. I, I was young, and so I had in my mind this hierarchy. And if you play video games or if you read a book, you've got the, the protagonist, and, um, and God obviously is the good guy. But then you've got the antagonist, and, and that's Satan. And sometimes, or I know I'm guilty of, and this is what somebody exposed to me, is they exposed this misunderstanding, this misunderstood hierarchy of, of God and Satan being adversaries. What we need to understand as children of God is it's not a fair fight. It's not God and Satan. It's God and Satan. Satan is under the authority of God. And that could be confusing when we see how sideways the world goes under the reign of, of Satan. But we need to understand that just as our flesh is over in every battle against the enemy, literally 100% of battles waged between God and the enemy, God is undefeated. He's undefeated in the past, He's undefeated today, and he will always be undefeated. He has a plan for us. He has a plan, a victorious plan. And he is a winner. And he is trustworthy. And he is solid. I... Uh, the reason I asked that we sing this song, I know the next song, I don't know the title of it, but I'm sure it's going to be good too. But the reason I asked for it is because it just celebrates the name of Jesus. I love repetitive worship lyrics that just over and over and over give glory to God, give glory to the Son. And so as we stand right now and sing this song together, I just want you to sing this to Jesus. Actually, Josiah, do you mind turning the overall volume just a little bit up? Um, I know it's out of my uh, purview to ask for that but let's let's give her church let's sing this to Jesus thank you for joining us for our main service if you want to learn more about Northridge Church or if you just want to talk to someone about what you've heard on this podcast please email us at info at nrchurch.ca we'd love to get to know you better until then be safe and be blessed